Well, open in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Two weeks ago, we looked at this long passage, the second longest story in Acts after the shipwreck, in which we are told three times in a row how Cornelius had a vision, how Peter had a vision, how Cornelius and Peter got together, and how Peter ended up baptizing Cornelius and his household. And then Peter comes back to Jerusalem, reports on this to the rest of the church, and the church fights with him about it, and then finally stops arguing and says, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance unto life. We know Luke, he could have told this in five or six verses. Instead, he tells it in 60 verses in order to make it clear that this is a major watershed event in the history of the Christian faith. The Gentiles are now part of the club. That was a hard lesson for the church to learn. A very hard lesson. But there's another hard lesson that's very obvious. It's on the forefront of the text. And that's a lesson that the church is still learning, or maybe better, a lesson that the church in our day has forgotten. We understand that Gentiles are part of the club. Right? You can't find a Christian today who will tell you, I don't know whether Gentiles can be saved. I'm really wondering. No, we we got that point. But the point that we're having a harder time with is the point that kind of makes it all real. That is the point that we need to eat together We need to be in each other's homes if we actually believe that Jesus saves. The inclusion of the Gentiles makes sense or works out practically, makes a difference only when the church is practicing hospitality. So our text is verses 2 and 3 of chapter 11. When Peter came up to Jerusalem... Those of the circumcision fought with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Let's read that again. When Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision fought with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us understand your word today open our minds give us the illumination of your spirit transform our hearts so that we can accept what your word says and let these seeds grow up and produce fruit 30 60 and 100 fold take away pride uh, take away stubbornness from all of our hearts father your word has something to say to each one here We pray that you would speak to us and that we would not stop our ears, that our hearts would be ready to listen and, if need be, to change because of what your word says to us. We thank you that Peter went into the Gentiles and ate with them. We thank you that Paul told Peter that he needed to keep doing it. And we pray that you would help us to do it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. 
So if you ask the question, can Gentiles be saved? The answer is obviously yes. That was a big question in the first century church. And we'll see the church struggling with it, not only in chapters 10 and 11, but also again in chapter 15 of Acts. But the question does not get formulated in that way here or really anywhere else in Acts. As you can see, Peter goes and he baptizes Cornelius and welcomes him in and says Gentiles are now part of the club and he comes back to Jerusalem and he immediately gets in trouble with the establishment. And the nature of that trouble is not you baptize the Gentile. Is not you visited a Roman soldier. Was not You sat at a table where they were serving pork chops. They didn't talk to him in terms of anything the Bible actually says about food laws or in terms of anything the Bible actually says about baptism or conversion or repentance or the gift of the Spirit. The issue that riled the minds of the Jerusalem establishment was you went into their home the uncircumcised, and you ate with them. The two places, in other words, where including Gentiles really makes a difference are visiting in the home and eating together. The establishment did not care that the Gentiles had been baptized. They weren't worried about Peter handing out the Holy Spirit to Gentiles, that didn't faze them a bit. What bothered them was the destruction of their man-made purity code. Now, this purity code was not entirely man-made. I've got a little chart here on the notes page for those of you who like charts. The Old Testament uses two different sets of vocabulary to describe three different conditions, three ritual conditions. So these are parallel with each other. Profane and unclean mean the same thing. Common and clean mean the same thing. And then holy obviously means the same thing as holy. So what are these conditions? Well, they come from the Levitical code. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and God says to him, certain things are holy that is suitable for use in worshiping God, suitable to come into God's presence. Other things are capable of being made holy. Those things are common things or clean things. They are fit to be sanctified. They're not sanctified, but they could be sanctified and rendered holy. And then finally, there are some things that are unclean or profane. Those things cannot be sanctified, at least not without the preliminary first step that would render them clean. You can't, in other words, jump straight from profane to holy. You have to be cleansed, and once you're common or clean, then you can become holy. So we've talked about this before in terms of the holy towel. In certain kitchens maintained by certain persons in this congregation, who we won't name, you will find a set of rags. Some of those rags are holy. They exist for particular purposes. This rag is for drying dishes. Woe be to you if you dry your hand upon this rag. 
Other rags are common. They are in the drawer and they can go on the nail to dry the dishes. And then there are a third pile of rags. They are profane. They can go on the toilet. They can go on the dog bowl. And so, you woe be to you if you take a profane rag out of the toilet pile and you hang that on the dish-drying holy nail, you have trespassed in the accursed thing. And you will meet the wrath of the person who maintains the holiness code in that particular kitchen. We laugh about it, but it is the exact same thing. God took this system and he blew it up to a nationwide scale. Certain things, certain persons, certain objects are holy. And woe be to you if you bring a merely common object and dedicate it to holy use without the appropriate rituals to sanctify it. And if you bring an unclean object and try to sanctify it, you bring wrath. God can literally send fire from heaven down on your head because you have violated holiness. Now, this code was drummed into Jewish youths. And of course, this code has parallels across all human cultures, whether in the kitchen or in the temple or in other arenas. So today, our purity codes that our culture enforces relate to our ideas about the germ theory of disease. You can see how these purity codes uh, come out in verse 28 of chapter 10. We talked about this two weeks ago. Peter comes into Cornelius' house. He finds a crowd waiting for him, and he doesn't open with, wow, guys, thanks for coming out. He opens with, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. Why does he open with that? Well, because he's Peter, and he tells you what he's thinking. (laughs) Peter, walking into Cornelius' house, felt like you and I would feel, based on the purity codes we've been trained in, he felt how we would feel if we had gone into a public restroom and rubbed our hands around the rim of the toilet. You do that, and then what's the thought in your mind? Unclean, 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 unclean. I have to go and cleanse myself right away because I am unclean. Right? Now, there's a certain tiny corner of our brain that knows that these purity codes are utterly absurd. That in actual fact, the surface of your phone case is far filthier than any public toilet rim you could find. Doesn't matter, right? I touch my phone and then I eat popcorn and I don't think twice about it. But if you touch the toilet rim, all that's in your mind is unclean, unclean, unclean. Well, that's where Peter was. He goes into a Gentile home and he's got that ick, unclean, unclean, unclean feeling washing all over him. And so he comments on it, being Peter. You know how unclean you all are. You know how I'm defiled to just stand here and talk to you. He tells them that up front. Even though God had shown him you know, God had taken this chart, and if you have a red pen, you can certainly wipe out the profane, unclean column. That no longer exists. You can wipe out the common, clean column. That no longer exists. Because Peter says, in verse 28, what did his vision mean? 
God had shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. What did the death of Christ do? It took every single human person, believer or not, and put them into the holy pile. Every human person is now holy. There's nobody common. There's nobody unclean. Peter is using that technical vocabulary from the sacrificial system. And he's saying not only are there no profane people who profane you and render you unfit for God's presence, there isn't even anyone common. Nobody's merely clean, but still in need of some additional sanctification before they can come into God's presence. What did Peter learn? Peter learned that the only category that still exists is holy. God has shown me not to call any person unclean or common. This is revolutionary. This is the Christian insight, and this is unique to the Christian faith. We believe, the Bible says, that the world is holy. The world exists for God, and people are holy too. Even non-believers. They exist for God. They may not know it. They may not act like it. But objectively speaking, they are on the nail that's only for the certain use they exist for God. They're holy. So what does that mean? Well, we applied this last year when we looked at this text to the whole question of racism. We saw that it is utterly ungodly and wrong for us to take any kind of person, any person, any color of person, and say, you are defiling. You are unclean. Now that's easy to see. Even the world can see that more or less today. That if a black man gets in the swimming pool and swims around, that does not pollute that water or make it unfit for a white woman to get in the water and swim around too. That idea is exploded and the world can see that that idea is stupid. What the world can't see and has never seen is that all these purity codes, the whole passel of them, wherever you find them, they're all garbage, they're all wrong, they're all false. That was what Peter's vision told him. Gentiles are not dirty. Black people are not dirty. Jews are not dirty. You can't find a human person or a human group that is defiling. You can't do it. There is no such group. Now, we human beings really like to create such groups. They recur again and again in all religions. And thus, in the Hindu faith, or we can't call it a faith, in the Hindu religion, the Hindu practices of today, you have the Dalits, the untouchable caste. In India, in modern-day India, this happened within the last five years, a Dalit fell into a well in a village. They hauled him out, and then they beat him to death because he had polluted their water supply. In his dirtiness, he had rendered that water unfit for anybody of a higher caste to touch. 
oh, those vile Hindus, right? Or the Muslims. They do it. You eat pork, you unclean. You touch pork, you unclean. Bible comes along and says, no, not true. You eat pork, you're still clean. The world calls you a Dalit, you're still clean. In fact, not just clean, you're holy. You exist for God. And unfortunately, this idea of purity and purity codes keeps creeping back into the Christian faith. In the medieval world, in the Roman Catholic Church, it was, don't eat meat on Fridays. You eat meat on Fridays, you're impure. And it was a big, big deal in the early 16th century when Ulrich Zwingli, a Roman Catholic priest in a Swiss town, said, it's Friday, come to my house for sausage for lunch. And people were like, sausage on Friday, are you serious? And they ate their sausage and they felt like big fat rebels because they were doing something unclean. They were violating the purity code that had been drummed into their head. But in our own era, in our own day, what? Many Protestant Christians have gotten involved in the temperance movement. You drink alcohol, you're unclean. Alcohol is filthy. And so it goes. We find, we make, we create fake conditions that say, based on your food, based on your habits, based on your ethnicity, based on your whatever, you are common or maybe even profane. God showed Peter that that is garbage. That's evil, that's wrong, that is anti-Christian in every way, shape, and form. Racial prejudice, religious prejudice, caste prejudice, class prejudice, oppressor versus oppressed dynamic, as is taught by current iterations of the theory that are seeking to find unclean persons. They're all unbiblical, they're all anti-Christian, they all deny what Jesus did, which was to make the world and the human race holy. (coughs) Peter learned that lesson. He went ahead and violated the purity codes that he had been taught his whole life through. He went into the home of a Gentile because God had showed him that Gentiles are holy. You can't be defiled by visiting a Gentile's home. You can't do it. It's not possible. You can imagine that you're defiled. You can imagine that the Dalit or the black American defiles the water, but it's not true. There is no defilement there. So in order to show that, what did Peter do? He had to go into their home and say, I acknowledge that you're holy. My presence here is my way of saying Gentile sinners are just as holy as I am. Gentile sinners can't defile me. So visiting in the home is all about 
or is the ultimate, the final outworking of our core Christian conviction that the world is holy and that the human race is holy. Other people cannot, will not, defile us in any kind of ritual sense. Now, yes, there are people who do evil things and you can be defiled morally by doing evil things. That's not what's in the context here. Visiting someone in their home is not evil. The only thing that can defile you is to actually do something evil. Associating with somebody, being with somebody, that's not evil. So Peter goes into the home of a Gentile, and then, you know, that comes up in Jerusalem. You went into Gentiles. And then part two, the second whammy, as it were, is that Peter sat down and ate with these Gentiles. And that really, that really set off the Jerusalem establishment. Okay, so you went into their home. Well, that's bad. But what's really bad is eating with them, sitting down at table and fellowshipping together. So access to private space, yeah, that's an issue. But eating together, table fellowship, that's an even bigger issue. What did Peter have to say? Well, why is it a bigger issue? Well, because God actually said certain foods are unclean. He was trying to teach his people about his holiness. So he made these purity laws and said some things are profane, some things are common, some things are holy. So that we could understand over those centuries of tutelage what holiness means. Now, now that we understand it, now that the time of tutoring is over and we know that holiness means existing for God, God did away with all those food laws. You can't be defiled by eating shrimp fried in bacon grease with cheese on top. You can be sickened by it. You can't be defiled by it. So Peter had to tell the church, the food I eat does not make me defiled. It does not make me less holy. It does not unfit me for the presence of God. Far from it. Food has no impact on whether I can go into God's presence and worship. So what's the point of the passage? We have to share our space with each other if we want to show that we believe that people are holy. Right? Just like saying, oh yeah, yeah, I think the toilet rim is clean. Oh, you do, do you? Go ahead and lick it. Well, I don't think it's that clean. How dead to you is the purity code? Oh yeah, I don't have a problem with black people. But I would never have one in my home. I'm not opposed to Jews, but I would never patronize a Jewish restaurant. Well, doesn't work that way. Paul called Peter out over that kind of ridiculous, essentially, it's a lie to say, I think they're clean, I won't have anything to do with them. I think they're holy, they'll never darken my door. I think there's nothing wrong with those people, but I won't eat with them. 
well, then you think there's something wrong with them. Then you are denying the gospel, as Paul's told Peter. But also, Paul not only Paul puts it even more provocatively in 1 Corinthians. If you'll turn over there, Paul puts it negatively to say, you need to be sharing your private space. You need to be sharing your food with your brothers and sisters, especially. What is it? 1 Corinthians 5.11 I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Right? In other words, before you talk to somebody on the street, before you rub shoulders in Walmart, before you work together on picking up litter in the gutter, you don't need to give somebody an exhaustive moral questionnaire. So have you ever, have you ever committed any felonies? How about misdemeanors? How about violations of the Ten Commandments? How are you? How's your health, morally speaking? You don't have to ask those questions, Paul says. Don't worry about immoral people in the world. Yes, I told you not to associate with the immoral. Here's what I meant. Verse 11, now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Seven different sins. Not even to eat with such a one. So what's the condition on which you can legitimately deny table fellowship to a fellow Christian? There's one condition. Paul gives it here. Someone who is claiming to be a Christian and involved in open, ongoing, egregious sin. That's the person that you can exclude from your table. That's the person that you cut out of your life. Otherwise, the world is holy, right? The only people who are in this condition of profaneness now are excommunicated Christians. So unless you're in the habit of regularly receiving God's people into your home, unless you're in the habit of regularly sharing your food with God's people, this command to excommunicate has no meaning. Oh, I'll stop sharing my table with you. Oh, you will? I've never even seen your table. Big deal. Makes no difference if you say, well, I won't eat with you anymore. Well, you never ate with me before. You know, if I get a message from Cheyenne from the governor's mansion on his station saying, you'll never be invited anymore to the governor's banquets, whoopee-ding. I was never invited in the first place. No, this command regarding excommunication only means something if you're regularly fellowshipping, if you're regularly sharing your home, if you're regularly sharing your food with your brothers and sisters. But more provocatively, if you're not sharing your home and your food, excommunication is not only not something you can practice, it's something you're already practicing. No, I won't eat with you. I won't have you in my home. I won't go to a restaurant with you. 
So positively, what does Peter show us? You have, if you really believe that people are holy, you have to show it by going to their home, having them in your home. If you really believe that people are holy, you have to show it by sharing your food with them, sharing their food with them. And Paul says it then the other way. If you really believe that people are unholy, you have to show it by not sharing your home with them. You have to show it by not sharing your food with them. In other words, the New Testament covers this from both sides. Hospitality, positively speaking, is a requirement. I have it in the bulletin, the verse, 1 Timothy 3.2, an elder must be hospitable. The ideal Christian, the one who is showing maturity in the faith, the one who is fit to be a leader in the church, he has to be hospitable. He has to share his space and his food. Somebody who doesn't do that is not qualified to be an elder. And conversely then, somebody who refuses to share space and food is acting like the rest of the church is revilers, drunkards, fornicators, covetous extortioners. Yeah, I won't invite you over. You're an embezzler. My spoons will be gone. So the key issue in demonstrating the unity of the church is this table fellowship thing. That's why the Jerusalem establishment zeroed in on that. Not you baptize them. Not you talk to them. Not you gave them the Holy Spirit. But you visited them. You ate with them. Those were the tells. Those were the signs that the Gentiles were actually included. What's the Christian message? Nobody's profane. Jews and Gentiles, people with different habits, different customs, they belong together in one church. I can also go further and say not only does the Bible teach this, the world knows this. I just finished this week a book about the opioid crisis, Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic, excellent book. But what's the payoff? After he spends 350 pages documenting how we got to the place where we have 100,000 overdose deaths a year in this country, what does the author say? He writes this, Heroin is, I believe, the final expression of the values we have fostered for 35 years. It turns every addict into narcissistic, self-absorbed, solitary hyper-consumers. A life that finds opiates turns away from family and community and devotes itself entirely to self-gratification by buying and consuming one product, the drug that makes being alone not just all right, but preferable. I believe more strongly than ever that the antidote to heroin is community. If you want to keep kids off heroin, make sure people in your neighborhood do things together in public often. Bring people out of their private rooms, whatever form those rooms take. The world can see it. The Bible explicitly talks about it in numerous places. Hospitality, sharing your space, sharing your food, is one of the best known, best treated topics in the New Testament. As one commentator put it, Jesus literally ate his way through the Gospels. What's the most characteristic scene in which you find Jesus? Either he's standing in front of a crowd talking to them, or he's sitting at a table eating with them. 
Paul rebuked Peter because Peter stopped eating with people who were different. And what's the promise of the Christian faith? That God will invite us into his own house to eat at his table forever. Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Not, I will go to heaven and have my own home there forever. And finally, what are we doing right here, right now? God invites us into his home and feeds us there every single week. Right? This is God's house. It's what we call the church. This is God's table, the Lord's table at which we sit and eat together. So you can demonstrate by your hospitality the unity of the church, the holiness of the world and of people. Or you can effectively say, "Mm, you're not holy. You don't belong. You don't fit in. Or, Well, you might be holy, but I'm not going to do it at my table. Right? Other things are too important to me, or in another twisted version. These things, hospitality, food, space, that's too unimportant to me. Meals don't matter to me. Space doesn't matter to me. So the Bible is clear. God invites us into his house. He feeds us, and he calls us to be like him. Don't live by man-made purity laws. The world is holy. People are holy. God showed it to Peter. Now he's shown it to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holiness. We thank you that you are truly holy, separate, undefiled, separate from sinners, that that's your son and that's you. Father, we thank you that you have made the world holy in Christ. That through Jesus you have taken profaneness and commonness and gotten rid of them and you have made it so in this world every single creature every single human person exists for you whether they know it or not lord we believe that now help us to live it we pray against the ungodly and the ungodly forms of purity laws wherever they are whether they're in Uh, non-Christian religions, or whether they're rearing their head in supposedly Christian religions and institutions. Lord, we pray that you would damn and destroy those things, that those elemental spirits of the world would be cut off in their tracks, and that the message of Christ, that people are holy, would be proclaimed, believed, and acted upon everywhere. We pray especially for India, that the Dalits and the other castes, that you would destroy the caste system and that it would be known there that Jesus is Lord and people are holy. We pray it for ourselves, for our own churches, for our own homes. Give us the grace to obliterate any remnants of caste or class or purity thinking in our minds and instead to live the way Paul lived, the way he told Peter to live, the way you told Peter to live, We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.